one of the coolest analogies I've ever heard was thinking about the departments in your company as almost like a salary cap, right? Mm-hmm. And they were using the example of like uh, the Patriots and they, they said, man, we have a guy we drafted. He's an amazing safety. And, and this is an actual story. And the safety got so good that they would have had to pay really top dollar. I mean, he was going to become a free agent. And they said, look, man, he's worth every penny. But the reality is that part of our defense, we cannot commit that type of money to because it, it would exceed kind of our departmental salary cap. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about your team and your numbers and your labor very differently, most people just say, well, like, well, I need Joe. Joe's good. Joe's been here forever. Now I just need to go get another Joe as we grow. And the reality is you need to think in a much more you know, systematic way about how you're allocating resources across your team to different functions and, and really ask yourself, like, which of these things as we grow could be outsourced, could be automated. We know the world's changing in that way. And so you get this kind of like old way of thinking and you just go, well, we've already got this guy. I got to keep him at all costs. And that's part of what, you know, I hate the Patriots, but that's part of what made the Patriots great and how they were able to sustain is they didn't get caught up in that. The following is my conversation with Colin Sandberg. Colin is a multi-business owner and a founder of Finelevate an MBA-led strategic finance firm that helps business owners use their numbers to make money rather than simply better categorizing their expenses. Additionally, a CEO and owner of manufacturing, distribution, and service businesses, Colin has developed a passion for demystifying small business finance and supporting fellow entrepreneurs in achieving their dreams. Enjoy our conversation. Colin, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Daniel. So I have a really great place to start. And in your bio, it reads, I started at 21 in my family business and quickly realized the business was a financial house of cards. Why make that analogy? Yeah. um, You know, so when I was uh, coming into the business, I didn't know any better. You know, I'd never been in a small business. I mean, one Mm -hmm. of the things that I, I wanted in a small business in my first place to go was to see behind the curtain, like what's really there. Um, and what I found was that it was not what I expected, right? I went in expecting like, okay, it's just a smaller version of a big business. Like it kind of has its stuff together, knows what it's doing. And I, and I basically figured out that every element of the finances was uh, a disaster. And so it felt like, you know, a house of cards where any one move or, you know, you sneeze and the whole thing's going to be gone. So Interesting. Fair enough on there. When you say the aspects were disaster, what specific financial aspects are you talking about? Are you talking about the statements, kind of the cash flow statement balance sheet, where they're just kind of poor financial metrics or things weren't organized? Take me a bit through that. Yeah. So not just that the, you know, they, they weren't competent in the way they were, uh, you know, doing their financial statements and recordings, Mm -hmm. but I'm more talking about like the actual, you know, realities financially were a disaster. So, you know, the first time I, I looked at, I, I'll, I'll never forget. I mean, I have a very vivid memory and this is, you know, over 20 years ago now. Mm-hmm. I sit down and I'm looking at the screen. I'm being trained uh, to help on the financial side of the business. And I take a look and I'm like, wait a minute, that's the bank account. Where are the other bank accounts? And they're like, no, that's the bank account. And I'm like, mm-hmm. hey. I'm looking around and I'm, I'm 21, 22 years old. And I'm like, you know, frankly, like, oh shit, man, that's, that's all the money. Like, that's mm-hmm. it. And, and I, you know, I wasn't a rich kid. Like I, I, I didn't have a lot of money myself, but I'm sitting there looking at this number and I'm thinking, there's no way we can do all of this with that number in the bank. 
And so that was just the tip of the iceberg. It was like our inventory was, you know, essentially garbage. We bought a bunch of inventory that was custom for a job that never happened. Mm -hmm. And so we've just got all this stuff sitting there. And then you look at, you know, okay, well, yeah, we, the customers owe us some money. So as soon as we collect that, we're going to be okay. And then you dig deeper and realize, well, a bunch of these customers say they're not paying. Mm -hmm. And now what? And, and the vendor bills and the payrolls coming and it just like on and on and on. And so that's really what I mean is not just that it wasn't put together well, it was truly a disaster. So one, one giant shit show is probably the best way to summarize it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So so for example, kind of one of the things that you just said, or some of the things that you just said, you said that the business had, you know, customers that weren't paying a really low cash balance, probably vendors, you know, wanting to get paid. So I'm just curious, how does a business operate or kind of function when, you know, you have all those differing aspects going on? Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge believer that um, we're either kind of getting forward or, you know, we're either getting better or we're getting worse, right? Yeah. It's like, there is no such thing as staying the same. And the hard part is when you're in that mode is that it's all consuming. Mm -hmm. So as a business, you're not thinking about the next financial strategy. You're not better packaging your product, you know, making it more appealing. You're not adding more layers of good customer service. It's like, it is a shit show. Mm -hmm. It is a house on fire. You're running around in a panic, trying to throw water everywhere you can. And you kind of live in that state. And so, you know, that's the real, it, the penalty goes beyond just the ugliness of the numbers or like, we're going to have to fix this it is a massive distraction from being able to do anything else productive within the business. Fair enough. For sure. You know, thinking specifically back to those days, you know, what are some horror stories that really stand out to you from, you know, running a business with just awful financial metrics? Yeah. Well, like I said, the minute I took that part of the business over, you know, I stopped worrying about my own paycheck. Like, you know, when you're young, especially, and, and you're in that mode and I was very much still living paycheck to paycheck you know, you're worried about, okay, like I've got to do these things to get to the next payroll. The minute I took that over, it was like, mine was an afterthought. How on mm -hmm. earth is this business going to make the next payroll? And we lived in that state, you know, for several years. And I would say that it was, uh, you know, one of the horror stories that I'll say is that, you know, we, it, it actually got to the point where, you know, we're talking to the bank, we owned a, a piece of property. Um, but the piece of property was, you know, the business was not doing well. The bank was not happy with the underlying numbers uh, for this property that it had financed. And I remember, you know, looking to the founder of the company who is later my partner. And I said, you know, the only good news I have for us is that the lock on the gate is still ours. <laughs> and it was like, man, it was, you know, and he just kind of sank in his chair when I said that, cause it was, I mean, it really, summarize like the the nature of where we were and how it was like on the cusp of going really really bad and so you know there's a, a thousand horror stories unfortunately i lived in that state for mm -hmm. five years before i took over the company and then really taking over the company made it temporarily worse before it got better because i shifted our our uh revenue dramatically you know, I changed, I pivoted hard when I took over the company. And so it very temporarily got even worse and then started to climb up and, and got much better from there. You know, thankfully you were able to recover, but just to linger on that thought for a bit. So there's the doomsday scenario there that the bank just kind of takes over the collateral of the business and, you know, you guys just kind of out of luck. Is that what doomsday would have looked like? 
Yeah. I mean, doomsday would have been that, yeah, essentially we failed in a way that, you know, financially devastated everybody involved, right? I mm -hmm. mean, our employees, our team, the people we owed money to. So, I mean, we weren't, you know, we weren't buying and, and selling with, you know, enormous companies per se. We had a lot of local vendors that really depended on us and we were major customers for. So, yeah, I mean, the doomsday is, is everybody loses. Essentially. Got it. Well, <laughs> glad you were able to, to avoid that and awesome that you were able to kind of make things work. But speaking about the start of that journey back or how you were able to really kind of grow the company from uh, the bottom that it was during that roller coaster that you were on, what's something that you learned kind of that you didn't know before? Oh my gosh. Well, you know, I, I went to small business because I wanted to bet on myself. And I think the biggest thing that I learned from those earliest days was I, I'm still the type of person who feels better when I, I'm the one at the, at the controls. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love about small business. Um, I learned that even when I'm down and, and the outside world doesn't believe that if I see a path and I see how to make it work, that I need to trust my gut and I need to put in what it takes to make it, make it through. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and ultimately I learned about myself, you know, before this, so, you know, I won't go back too far, but before this, I was a bad kid. Like I was, I, I barely graduated high school. I got in trouble. Uh, you know, I, I didn't put myself in a position to go to college, even though my dad had a PhD, my mom had a master's degree. Look how you turned out. You're just fine. Well, yeah, eventually <laughs> uh, now I just look like an entrepreneur looking backward, but you know, at the time it was like, I had been this, you know, disengaged from my own life in a way. And so what I, what I really proved to myself and what I learned was that if I applied myself and I really focused on what I needed to learn to solve my problems, that I mm -hmm. could get there. And that pattern repeated, has repeated, it's repeating right now, right? It's mm -hmm. going to repeat forever. As long as I keep doing this, um, you know, double down on learning, uh, set a vision and get after it and get to work and don't take no for an answer. Speaking of that, and there's one other thing that I wanted to touch upon, but about learning, I think there's a really big misconception that a lot of people think that learning is over by the time you graduate college and you just kind of have your knowledge and you just do your thing. But I think it's a really outdated mindset because the world is changing constantly. I mean, technology over the last 15, 20 years has gone at kind of an exponential pace. So from your experience and just from some of the things that you've seen, why do you think there's this misconception about learning stopping when you're, when you're done college? Yeah, I think, you know, to your point, um, going up until the point you're done with college, the vast majority of the learning that you do is kind of spoon fed to you, mm -hmm. right? And like, I have little kids, so, um, you know, you're spoon feeding little kids like, hey, it's time to learn to read. It's time to learn your numbers, time to learn shapes, it's time to learn color, whatever it is, right? You're always, and so I think the hard part is you kind of feel like you're being forced to go through those motions all the way up through sometimes all the way through college. Mm -hmm. And, and then all of a sudden the tables turn and it's like, no one besides, you know, how to do this job, no one's asking you to learn anything anymore. It's on you. Mm -hmm. And are you actually dedicated? And do you actually, and I think, unfortunately, like I know what happened with me, people can, can kind of lose the, like the learning can lose the luster when it's being imposed on you. Mm -hmm. When you get to go after it, you have a different love for it. You have a different appreciation. You're willing to work to a different level. And so, you know, that's what I encourage the people is like, I don't care where you are in your education journey or what age you are, carve out some time for yourself and go mm -hmm. learn about things you're passionate about and, 
and kind of have that love of learning for its own sake. I agree in the sense that you definitely have that love when you're pursuing something that you enjoy as opposed to something in school. I think that's why school might get a bad rep because oftentimes we're forced to sit in these meaningless classes that we don't really take away a lot from as opposed to when we're actually interested in something, really putting in the effort. So really an interesting note on there. The other thing that you mentioned earlier that I wanted to ask about, you spoke about when you're kind of in a business, you like being kind of in control, kind of at the helm, trying to figure out things going on. As a business owner, how do you know the balance between kind of controlling things and also being able to let go or kind of handle things that are outside of your control? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think it all comes down to structure and systems, right? So what I mean by that is I, when I want to be in control of something, whether I'm running the company or whether I'm overseeing it, whether I'm helping advise someone, I don't want to just show up every day and kind of decide how I'm going to go about it. Mm -hmm. We need to have a structure and a plan for how, how things make the most sense. And to the extent that I'm able to implement a structure and a plan and understand the structure and the plan, then I can let go. It's much easier to let go because I'm not just letting go and saying, okay, you know, today was, it was Colin style tomorrow. It's Daniel style. And we're mm -hmm. just going to start over. That's not a good, good idea for a business. You need that kind of steady hand in the business. And mm -hmm. so to me, it's all about building the steady hand and early in your career, learning what makes for a good steady hand mm -hmm. is really like something you have to figure out. And sometimes it changes by function, but what I love about business, everything you touch, there's strategy, there's leadership, there's, you know, human psychology, there's, you know, the laws of kind of reality and what, mm -hmm. it, what it looks like when you try something versus what it looked like in your head. And so you have to kind of work through learning those different things. But as you come out the other side, it's like, let's build a framework and then I can run it or you can run it and we'll get a similar result. And so that's when you can really let go and kind of get more into oversight and out of having to, you know, be one man against the world. To really dig deep into that, was there ever a pivotal moment where kind of you learned that hard lesson of like, I just can't control everything? Like, was there ever like a moment in time where you were like, you know, before that moment, you were like, I'm in control, like it's everything I can kind of command. And then afterward, you're like, okay, there's just some things that, you know, are, are out of my hands. Well, I'll tell you, you know, the bigger your team gets, the more that's absolutely true, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the the limitations, I think a, a ceiling that a lot of, of business owners, and certainly if they start their own business or start out in a really small business, is this kind of command and control. Like, you know, hey, I do it all and I've just got a, I've got a helper in this area and a helper in this area and a helper in this area. And I, but I'm calling all the shots, mm -hmm. right? And it's easy to fall into the trap of the ego trap of why that, that feels good. And you think you're really smart and you think you're doing a really good job, but that doesn't scale, right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't work beyond six or maybe eight people, even when you get to 12 or 15 people, all of a sudden that same logic, like, wait a minute, I haven't, I haven't talked to this guy all day. I didn't tell him what to do, you know, and it, it starts to break down and your results are not consistent. And so mm -hmm. for me, it was, you know, getting out of when I took over the business and I had to, to cut it down to a smaller size and really change dramatically, like what we were offering, it was like command and control. You know, I was in that mode of we're doing this, you know, do this or get out of the way kind of mindset. And there's a time and place where that makes sense. But when you grow beyond that and think times get better and the business starts to have some success and you start to grow in terms of people, that model's broken. And mm -hmm. so I really struggled with knowing when to turn that off and how to dial it back slowly and still get good results. Uh, within the different areas of the business. 
Do you think a part of that letting go or kind of as your company grows, realizing that everything is in your control, do you think a part of that has to, has to do with trust and just kind of some people have trust issues and have a difficult time trusting just their employees to get stuff done without oversight? A hundred percent. That's the name of the, the name of the game is trust. And so mm-hmm. like for me, you know, going through the heartache, I mean, man, we're talking when it was ugly, like when I first got involved in the business and even up to when I took it over, I mean, we're talking sleepless nights. We're talking working, you know, crazy hours, uh, blood, sweat, and tears. You know, it was every ounce of it. And so part of that trust, and if I'm being really, you know, really candid, which is why I'm here, Mm -hmm. is like you don't have the same level of respect for the other person because they haven't committed what you have Mm -hmm. to get there. And so it's like, wait a minute, you you think I'm going to turn this over to somebody who doesn't work as hard as me? Mm-hmm. hasn't been working as hard to learn as I have, doesn't care as much as me, doesn't want it as badly as I do. And I'm supposed to let them just go off and do this? Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. And so it takes a level of professionalism and leveling up your game and leadership and management and structure, all the things I was talking about, to feel like I can do that and get a, a, still get a really solid result. Got it. So it's, a lot has to do with probably ego and trust and trusting that the people that are coming in are, are there to do a great job. So it actually brings me to another thing I wanted to talk about, which is really important in entrepreneurship and business, and that's hiring. So when you're hiring, actually, before I'll say that, I should add, I think a lot of times there's a big divide in people's minds about one of the things that you just mentioned, in the sense that a lot of owners think that people are just coming in just to make money, just to kind of make make a, a checkbox versus a lot of times if you hire the right people, you know, obviously we need to make a living, but people want to make an impact. So mm. from a business owner's perspective, when hiring, how do you check or what do you do to see if people are there only to make money versus actually add value to the business? Yeah, I love that. Uh, you know, I have, it, it's a, it's a negative way to put it, but I kind of talk about clock punchers, right? Mm-hmm. Which to me, a clock puncher is kind of the epitome of somebody who's just there for the paycheck, right? Mm-hmm. And I think to your point, you know, the, the hard part is, especially if you're a smaller business, the business owner who has that attitude, I was just explaining about like, you know, nobody's in this, like I am. It, it's amazing. They, they attract people who kind of fulfill that expectation. <laughs> so the people who have pride in their work and are learners and seekers and working on their own to develop and, and add tremendous value and want to have a place where they're bought in, they're, they see that from a mile away and they're like, not a chance. I'm never going there. And a lot of the yes men and the people who just are, are just a you know, helper come into your world and then it just, it just solidifies that belief. So I think that you know, to your point, what I love is that notion of you know, really being able to filter in the hiring process for the culture fit, like mm-hmm. making sure that you really are filtering for the style of person and the way they you know, conduct themselves in, in life, the behavior. Um, and one of those is like, man, I don't think everybody in the world needs to be a business owner, mm-hmm. but, but be passionate about what you do. Like be passionate. And to your point, there are plenty mm-hmm. of people who want to work somewhere they can have an impact for a cause they believe in, whether it's the mission of the company or what the company is delivering. And they're, they're really passionate about the area that they work. And so that's fantastic. And if you, when you hit a high enough level of leadership that you can actually make room for that, you will start to attract it. So to switch gears a little bit about here from the employee perspective, you know, I I really like your comments on there, but 
I think a lot of times, you know, I think everyone's a little different and we all intuitively have different passions or purposes that we want to pursue. Uh, but a lot of times people, for whatever reason, don't pursue them because I think a big driver of that is fear. So kind of from the, if you could switch gears for a second from the employee perspective, why do you think a lot of people are scared to really go after those careers that they really want to make an impact in? Well, I, I think, you know, it's it, it's easy to fall into kind of the rat race and what happens and it happens for all of us. Like I, I always say, I'm never going to let my kids go to community college. Okay. Mm -hmm. I told you I was, I was kind of a bad kid. I didn't go off to school. Like, you know, my parents had, and like I wanted to, I ended up doing this community college thing. Well, what happens? You go to community college. Now I'm going to school at night. I got to get a job so that I can keep going. Well, now like the friends who are still around, they've got apartments. I want to get an apartment. Next thing you know, I have a job, I have an apartment and I'm going to school on the side. Well, mm -hmm. it's truly on the side, right? Because I'm working to live, not working to go to school. Mm -hmm. And so you fall into that rat race, right? It just, it, it, it jumps in right there. The problem is we, it, it's kind of that like investing in yourself is part of that fear piece is like, mm -hmm. I have to be willing to maybe even take a step back in life to go pursue what I want as opposed to I've already made a little progress in this area of life. I'm already making a little bit of money. If I step backward to go pursue this, it's like starting over and mm -hmm. people are so ingrained in, in the level of the rat race we've gotten to. We all do it. It's totally the, the human psychology. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm committed. I can't ever show the world that I've gone backward. So like I'm here, I can't go back to sleeping on couches. I can't go back to, you know, sharing an apartment with somebody. I got my own place. I can't go backward. And so I just think that people get so hung up on the wrong things instead of realizing that investing in yourself and being in that area of passion, you will go so much further in life and add so much more value and be so much more fulfilled that it doesn't matter what you have to sacrifice. You should, you should do it. Kudos to that, my man. I really appreciate you putting that so beautifully, Colin. And I want to get back to the business stuff, but it's, it's tough to linger because I think that was a really important message. It's, it's tough to kind of switch because I think that was a really important message. And I think one that people should really take away a lot from in the sense that at the end of the day, we're all kind of going to be dust. You know, I don't know some people have different beliefs about what happens after we die. This, that, you know, I'm, I'm not here to comment on anyone's uh, beliefs, but reality is, you know, we all have the same fate. So might as well uh, take your time to do something you love. So really beautiful note on there. Uh, the other thing I wanted to discuss is kind of some of the specific business that you're up to with Finelevate and a lot of the work you have to do, as we mentioned earlier, revolves around finances. So before we get into some really fun company stuff, from your perspective as an entrepreneur, what are some misconceptions you think businesses have about their finances? Well, I think the first one and the scariest one to me is that business owners think they can get away without ever learning them. <laughs> so you know, I just, I just, even though I told you I didn't do well in school and I was kind of a troublemaker, I, I always naturally gravitated toward math. Mm -hmm. It just kind of made sense to me. Not, not super high levels of math because I, I never got to those, mm -hmm. but the basics, the, the fundamental kind of core value of math. And so that always made sense to me. So when I went into business and was kind of pushed into the financial side, I was like, okay, this, this makes sense to me. Um, I get it that that's a very rare thing. Most entrepreneurs, most people in general, like 95% of the class shrinks down when there's a, a, a pop quiz comes out in math, right? Mm -hmm. People don't like that. People don't want that. That's okay. But if you're a business owner, you owe it to yourself, you owe it to your team, you owe it to your family, you owe it to every stakeholder involved to like level up and actually learn what these numbers are and what they mean. 
And I think what happens is a lot of small businesses, when they get started, it's like, well, if I've got money in the bank, I'm okay. If I don't, I'm in trouble. And they almost take that same logic. And next thing you know, they're a $500,000 a year business or a million dollar a year business or bigger. And like that thought process doesn't work anymore. And so if you've never graduated beyond that, you know, I see a lot of business owners who start to kind of feel like they're, you know, they're, they're living a lie a little bit. Cause they're like, everybody around me thinks I've got this figured out. I have no idea. <laughs> what these numbers mean. So quick following on there. And you mentioned that a lot of kind of entrepreneurs or business owners don't really go beyond that uh, basic level of math. And actually another aside here to my current aside, I think there's a misconception. A lot of this stuff is really foreign and really difficult to learn. And, you know, learning anything in the beginning is difficult, but it's not calculus. A lot of it's just kind of plus and minuses and just learning the arithmetic. So I just uh, urge every business owner to go out and do that. And after kind of learning it, I think you'll see that it's not as, it's not as uh, fearsome as you think it is. But back to kind of what I was touching upon, do you think most entrepreneurs come from a finance or business background or have you noticed they come from a different kind of background? No, I think, I, I think to me, the two, the two things that almost every uh, entrepreneur, let me, let me make it three, three things, mm -hmm. almost every entrepreneur I've ever met. Number one, they have proximity to another entrepreneur. And I've noticed this pattern and I've rarely heard anybody else ever talk about it, which is, you know, entrepreneurship from afar looks scary. It looks intimidating. It looks overwhelming. Once you've seen somebody up front, and I'm going to be kind of harsh here, but you know, mm -hmm. it's like you look at somebody and you're like, I mean, I'm at least as smart as that guy. Like mm -hmm. I could definitely do this. Right. And so it's like humanizing. It makes it more approachable. So they've, they've been around an entrepreneur. I think the next thing is they're generally bold. And there are different types of bold. Some people are like, I've got to calculate a thousand percent of the risks. And then once I feel comfortable, then I'm going to be bold. And some people are just like crazy bold, right? Like they just go, they, they jump and, and, you know, then they're trying to build the airplane on the way down. Right. Mm -hmm. But so I, I would say that they, they approximate to an entrepreneur, they're willing to be bold and then they're willing to kind of overcome whatever it takes to sell a product and have, and express their passion. Mm -hmm. Some people are, really passionate about the product. Some people are really passionate about, you know, helping people and talking with people on the sales side, but it's so rare that you have those combinations of like prerequisites, I would say, mm -hmm. and someone who's analytical and, and kind of financially minded. It's just very, from my experience, it's a small percentage of, of entrepreneurs. There's like Jeff Bezos and then everyone else. So we'll just... <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's a fantastic point. So I would say most of them are kind of engineers, which Jeff Bezos mm -hmm. was kind of passionate about the product. And he had that engineering, mm -hmm. kind of nerdy engineering mind, right? Where it's like, okay, well, I, I learned now the financials are just another math equation. I'm going to go figure mm -hmm. that out. No big deal. Yeah. Uh, but I for mean, the rest of us, it's a different challenge. Yeah. He's a, he's a freak. I mean, he's done a lot for the world, but I think most people have to realize most of us aren't freaks of nature like that. And, you know, we yeah. have to kind of hire for our weaknesses, but I think that was a really good point you made there. Another thing that I thought was really interesting about your company in particular is that you help a lot of small businesses with their finances and kind of make a financial report card and help them out regarding how to move forward just so they can sustainably operate. But your firm is run mostly by MBAs, not CPAs. Is that a little counterintuitive? Yeah. So uh, my my story, I told you, is ironically, um, I don't have an undergrad degree, mm -hmm. but I went and I went and got my executive MBA. And so, you know, my journey was basically, like I said, I started doing the night school thing. Once I got into my my first company, um, I was an employee. 
it was, it, it became my life. I was all consumed. I, w- I took over the finance of the business about a year in. Then I realized how big a trouble we were in. I started working like a crazy person. I was just, I was obsessed with trying to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. And so the school thing went from, you know, I'm working, I'm, I'm doing 12 hours. Now I'm doing nine hours. Now I'm doing six hours. Now I dropped my last two classes and, and now what? And so it just kind of petered off in, in terms of importance. And then once I, I took over the business and, and I really wanted, I, I kind of wanted to regain something for myself. And I really just had a chip on my shoulder that I hadn't gotten a degree. Cause again, my dad had a PhD. My mom had a, had a master's degree and I'm like, man, I like my, I want to show the level that I think I'm operating at. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of forced my way. I talked my way into this executive MBA program, even though I didn't have an undergrad degree and convinced them to let me in anyway, again, didn't take no for an answer. And, and so what I wanted though, was to learn what big businesses had figured out that small businesses didn't know yet. Mm-hmm. There is no such thing as a large business that hasn't figured out its finances. It doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So somewhere on that path and also no, no fortune 500 companies started out that way. Every one of them started small and made it all the way there. And so I just wanted to figure out what those lessons were. And so to your point, like I'm an entrepreneur first, and the founders of the company, myself and my partner are both MBAs, but we're working in small business. We're distilling those big business lessons down into something that actually applies in the real world, kind of on the front lines of small business. So speaking about those big businesses, how did they do finance differently than small businesses that have really enabled them to scale to such a high rate? Well, there's, you know, again, obviously at some size, you've got the, you've, you've really figured out your numbers and what they mean. And you've got specialists, right? Mm -hmm. Small businesses, typically you've got a handful of generalists. um, And then when they start to get good is when they start to implement specialization. Mm -hmm. And so the, the founder may have originally been pretty good at product and pretty good at sales, but ultimately they're probably going to focus on one of those two as they grow bigger. And then likewise, you're going to start to have, you know, someone come into the business who can help with the financial side. The big businesses though, you know, one of the big things is they have defined and refined their business model to another level beyond what average small businesses do. And what I mean by that is they don't play in markets that can't sustain the amount of growth they want. Mm -hmm. They don't play in markets that can't pay the premium pricing that every one of them commands. They don't play in, in markets where they can't use a playbook they already know works and do it bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, you know, a lot of those things are basically businesses are stuck at small sizes because they're trying to figure that out. Like, who am I? Who do I sell to? Mm-hmm. You know, how can I get customers who actually pay me? Like, they're still asking a lot of the questions big businesses have answered those a long time ago. And that's part of what it took for them to get to where they are. So big businesses are just really well-defined and they kind of just play another league when it comes to that stuff. Yeah. And they're not afraid to make investment, right? One of the big things that's scary when you're small is that like- No balance sheet. You have no balance sheet. You have no no investment track record. And I don't mean in this, in stocks and bonds. I'm talking about in your business. Like we're going to okay. go into this new market. You see big companies, they live in that land. And, and one of the things they figured out is big companies figure out what works and they always dabble to try new things mm-hmm. and they don't, they don't put a lot into the new things, but they never stop dabbling. And so it's like, you know, if you're, if you're Jeff Bezos, right, you're, you're, you're 
hitting your core. You are just absolutely milking what's working, but you're testing like, what if webs, you know, Amazon web services, what if that became a thing? Well, now that's a multi-billion dollar. That's one of the best parts and strongest parts of all of Amazon's portfolio, but it started out as a dabble, right? Mm -hmm. And so you never give up testing, trying and dabbling, but you also don't take your eye off the ball on what's already working. And small companies, man, we are guilty of living in one or the other. We're like professional dabblers or we're just, hey, I know it works. I'm going to stick to it. And I don't need all this extra stuff on the side. And the problem is the world keeps changing. So the one thing I'll add to that too is a lot of big companies, they have this intangible quote unquote cloud in the sense that since banks see or kind of lenders see that they have these huge balance sheets, a lot of times whoever's lending to them will understand that, you know, or will be more accepting of a risk uh, because they see that they have the ability in case it doesn't work to pay that debt off or, you know, they see an asset that they could maybe take over and still turn a profit on where small businesses, I don't really have that luxury. So that's the other thing I would definitely add on, but really interesting note on there. You know, the other thing I wanted to ask a lot of what you do, as I mentioned earlier, revolves around a financial report card. So, are you able to determine a business's financial health? I mean, is there anything else you look at besides top line revenue or costs over the last few years? Yeah. So what, what we're really doing there is number one, you know, we call it the FIN score, but the FIN score is really just, again, to your point, it's more of a profitability scorecard than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, from fixing my business, you made a really great point. And, and I don't hear everybody every day as you probably don't either talk about the balance sheet. The balance sheet mm-hmm. is really, really important. But when I fixed my first business, I didn't fix it with the balance sheet. The balance sheet was kind of what it was to start with. I mean, now I'm making moves and I'm trying to do what I can to help clean it up and help address the challenges that exist there. But the only way to fix the business was really fixing it through profitability. If you Mm -hmm. can become profitable, sustain profitability, then ultimately you can climb out of any hole. Ultimately, you can climb any mountain, right? As long as I'm going up. And so what we really help people focus in on is that scorecard is really heavily weighted on, on profitability. And part of, part of the idea too, is that with the fin score, again, it's a report card. So it's a, you know, everybody knows that I want to get a 95 more than I want to get a 75. So it's Mm -hmm. out of a hundred. It's a way you can start sharing numbers with your team. And I, I kind of talked about that earlier where like I'm holding everything in and to grow to that next level, I've got to start engaging a team and developing specialization. Well, your sales specialist is never going to be good at finance. I mean, 99.9 out of a hundred times. Mm-hmm. So it's giving a path to try and get the team brought along and understanding what works. And, and really a huge part of it is segregating those costs into percentages of like, what is my marketing spend as a percent of revenue? What is my overhead as a percent of revenue? What is my labor as a percent of revenue? And tracking those, because what I see is companies have an off quarter and off year, but they never change their overhead structure. Mm -hmm. They start to grow, but now labor is growing faster than my revenue. And so you get all of these, like if everything were a million dollars every year and it's just a million and a million and a million, it'd be really easy to build a nice stable healthy business, but it's in those ebbs and flows that people make a lot of mistakes that ultimately, you know, they pay a huge penalty for. Got it. Really interesting note on there. So say, for example, if a company takes this assessment or it's its financial scorecard and let's just, let's give it a grade of a B, you know, a solid grade, but a lot of room for improvement. So on that note, what are some practical steps a company can take to improve its finances? 
Well, I just kind of hit on like, you know, thinking about your labor um, and it really, it's, I'll say first and foremost, it's very heavily dependent on the type of business. Mm -hmm. So I'll touch on a couple of them. If, if you think about the labor side of your business, uh, one of the coolest analogies, and I love you got your, your AI Jersey. Uh, yeah. Like, I, I, I can't say I'm a Sixers fan, but you can't, you can't help but love AI. Um, oh, but, you know, if, if you're talking about this, one of the coolest analogies I've ever heard was thinking about the departments in your company as almost like a salary cap, right? Mm -hmm. And they were using the example of like uh, the Patriots and they, they said, man, we have a guy we drafted. He's an amazing safety. And, and this is an actual story. And the safety got so good that they would have had to pay really top dollar. I mean, he was going to become a free agent. And they said, look, man, he's worth every penny. But the reality is that part of our defense, we cannot commit that type of money to because it, it would exceed kind of our departmental salary cap. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about your team and your numbers and your labor very differently, most people just say, well, like, well, I need Joe. Joe's good. Joe's been here forever. Now I just need to go get another Joe as we grow. And the reality is you need to think in a much more, you know, systematic way about how you're allocating resources across your team to different functions and, and really ask yourself, like, which of these things as we grow could be outsourced, could be automated. We know the world's changing in that way. And so you get this kind of like old way of thinking and you just go, well, we've already got this guy. I got to keep him at all costs. And that's part of what, you know, I hate the Patriots, but that's part of what made the Patriots great. And then mm -hmm. how they were able to sustain is they didn't get caught up in that. Now I'm in Texas. Mm -hmm. We got Jerry Jones, historically very different. Yep. He's like, that's my guy. I'm paying him whatever it takes. And then, I'll, and then you're cheaping out somewhere. You absolutely need the help because well, you've overinvested in the wrong place. I was going to say really interesting note on there. Cause you have on one way, kind of a lower cost model, but you're not going to sacrifice efficiency in another way. Uh, you have, you know, a really big cost model, but you're not as efficient. And I guess the results, I guess, with all due respect, and I hope this isn't personal since I'm an Eagles fan. I mean, we also didn't have a great ending to our season. So I'll leave, <laughs> leave that note there, but you can really see the kind of results that have played with those two different mindsets. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I was over here and, and most of DFW was over here. Like do not pay Zeke Elliott, like mm -hmm. awesome guy had a great first three or four years, but you're like, he's a running back. It makes no mm -hmm. sense. And so again, you know, not ever, we're not going to be in the sports business by and large, but if you were to zoom out and it's really easy with sports, cause we see these distinct positions, but it's no different with business, right? It's like the ops might be your defensive team. The, the offense is, is your sales team and maybe finance the special teams, right? I can only allocate resources according to the market, but also what I'm trying to accomplish, like what style of team I'm trying to build, the way I'm going to you know, deploy my services. And when you make that big Zeke Elliott commitment and then he flops, you now have to let go of one of the best wide receivers in the game. Mm -hmm. And Amari Cooper's up still doing what he's doing. Now he's for another team, right? And so it's like, it, you, you have to think bigger than just the immediate what's in front of you and what you want. You think about a, a more long-term strategy you know, with your labor. And, and it's not only like, do I cut this guy? Cause obviously in sports, that's how that works. Yep. But I mean, as you're adding team, as you're thinking about, you know, what does your business look like three years from now? You need to have a really good systematic strategy. For sure. Especially considering, you know, is the value that this is bringing on superseding the, the accounting costs that I'm putting in place. That's also really important there. And I appreciate all the analogies you made there. Cause I think they're really applicable to business and how we see a lot of these things today 
on a slightly different note, you know, something that you probably hear a lot about and something I've mentioned actually in the last few shows is kind of the rise in AI. So sorry to keep ruminating, ruminating on that. And you probably see that in every single article these days, but specifically applied to kind of finance and accounting in your business, what impact do you think AI will have on the future of accounting, finance, and budgeting? Yeah, I think, um, I think AI is going to have a similar, at least short-term impact on, on all areas of business, which is hopefully it takes the, the low-hanging fruit, the kind of repetitive, uh, low-level tasks. Mm. You know, I think the challenge is, and, and this is why we created FinElevate to be a little different. The challenge is that the, it's not a lack of access to a strategy that's holding back businesses from a financial standpoint. It's like the, the boots on the ground ability to help make some of the changes. Mm-hmm. If, as we were fixing the financial side of, of my first business, this was not like if I could have written down the perfect plan for what we wanted to be and just click go, it wouldn't be done. Mm-hmm. It took years to make those changes. And so it's this kind of discipline that's involved and this, this ability to actually make changes and regroup. I think all of those things can be supported by AI, but I don't think it's replaced by AI. Now, categorizing your expenses a hundred percent can be, can be replaced and should be, uh, by AI. So I, I see it as some of the day-to-day accounting, repetitive monthly close, you know, how are we going to do this over and over and over again? Absolutely. AI is coming for that and it should, but you can go to chat GPT right now and say, you know, give me a financial plan mm-hmm. and hand it to a business owner and they're still not going to do it. Right. It's not a, it's not a lack of information problem. It's a handheld, let's go through this and here's what we're going to do next. And then here's what we're going to do next and actually helping them implement it. That For sure. Need. It'll be interesting to see where the break, where the kind of the line is drawn, where tasks are associated with or tasks are given to AI or some things that we can do. So it would definitely be something to keep an eye on going forward. But to move back to a bit of a higher level here, you know, for everything that you've done in your career and you've actually you've mentioned earlier, some of those uh, tough lessons or tough times that you've had to endure. And what are some of the hard earned or hard learned lessons you've learned throughout your career that you wish you knew beforehand? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you know, there's an old saying that, you know, what do you do when you find yourself in a hole? And the first thing is stop digging. (laughs) So, yeah. So, you know, it it took me really five years before I, I took over the business, my first business and started to turn around. And the very first thing I did was finally stop the bleeding, right? Stop digging deeper into the hole. So in other words, before that, we were taking on jobs and we kept believing this pie in the sky idea that like, well, if we just do a bigger job, we'll make money. You know, like, yeah, we lost money on all these other jobs. If you just do a bigger one, we're going to yeah. figure this out, <laughs> which is, you know, honestly kind of a, a disastrous way to, to think about business. And so I, one of the first things is like, you need to make money on every quote, every order. You need to know how you're going to make money on that deal. Mm-hmm. And you don't need time. There's no time for doing it for practice. There's none of this like... I, I think that one of the big hangups is people see a Walmart or they see an Amazon or they see these massive companies and they think, well, you know, they're a low cost leader. I can be a low cost leader and I'll make it up in volume. Mm-hmm. It's like, you need to be realistic. That is not the definition of like 98% of all small businesses are not volume based businesses. So if you can't figure out how you're going to make money on those individual deals, then when you start adding them together, you're not going to suddenly break through some sort of profit level. Mm-hmm. So make money, grind out a higher margin. Um, and so that's the first one. The second one, which kind of goes hand in hand 
is every small business should have premium pricing. Again, only companies that are in that massive scale model can get away with being the low cost leader. For sure. For the rest of us, you need to ask yourself and have that deep heart to heart conversation. What would my business have to do to where my customers would see it as a premium offer? And you need to go deliver on that because if you're doing everything on the cheap, including your sales, you know, obviously it's easier to sell when your numbers are lower. Like that, that doesn't take a genius to figure that out. The problem is now when I go back and I look at the materials that I'm providing or the team that I'm hiring or the, you know, investments that I'm making and learning AI and all the other things, every single one of them is done on the cheap. And so the experience of the customer is now on the cheap. And it's just a downward spiral that I see so many small businesses fall into. And so for me, those are the two things that if I knew those the day I walked into the business, I would have looked at the entire business differently and I would have fixed it, frankly, a whole lot faster than how long it took. For sure. So invest in your people and invest in your premium product. And I think that'll pay off in the long run. So really appreciate the advice on there. But just as a parting note here, you know, after everything you've been through and all the entrepreneurship journeys you've been on and all the companies you've worked with, through it all, what's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? Oh, best piece of business advice. Boy, that's a good one. Um, you know, I, I would say, I don't know that one can stand out as the absolute best, but I'll <laughs> tell you that. That's the best answer. <laughs> yeah, there's, there is no one. It, what's amazing is it's kind of like, you know, you pick up an old book you've already read and you read it again and it says something totally different to you. It's like, Things come into, into your life when you need them and, and, and hit you at a different level based on what you need. Um, one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten is, is that you really have to invest in getting better, like being more introspective mm -hmm. and looking at your company's failures as a reflection of you and stop this like, well, this person screwed up or the market was out to get me or really bad luck is like, you need to look at this in the mirror and say, there is someone who would have done a job better than me and this problem would have been a non-issue, right? Like someone in the world would make my job look really easy. Mm -hmm. And if that's true, then I still have a long ways to go. And room to grow for sure. Colin, I think that was some beautiful advice there and thanks for everything and appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. Hey, enjoyed it, man. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Colin Sandberg. If you enjoyed the episode, rate the show on Spotify, drop a comment on YouTube, and subscribe.